Good morning. Please turn with me in your copy of the Bible to Exodus chapter 22. If you do not have a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you, in the back of it. It's on page 63 in your pew Bibles. Again, Exodus chapter 22, starting at verse 16, reading to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 22, starting at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay the money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not uh, exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to that passage. We're going to be referring to it often. Over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at a number of principles and problems that are addressed in this rather dense section of Exodus that's called the Book of the Covenant. And uh, rather than go through every little bit of case law, uh, we've been ta- tackling various topics as they've come to us in the text. We started out with a fundamental principle, namely the fear of the Lord. We saw that it is the beginning of wisdom. And then we sought to understand the difficult problem of slavery. And then last week we examined the biblical principle of restitution. We've come now to a section that begins halfway through chapter 22, and it it extends all the way to chapter 23, verse 9. It's a bit of an unfortunate chapter division, uh, but that seems to be the section there. And so you're probably wondering, well, what's the topic? What's the topic that we're going to address? There seem to be a number of different ones in there. Well, you've you've probably noticed somewhere along the line that the editors of of the English translations of the Bible that we have, they like to add section headings for us. And uh, these are not, I I need to remind you, they're not inspired of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they even totally miss the point of the section. But generally speaking, these uh, section headings and subheadings are, are, they're usually quite helpful. And uh, they give you a, a pretty good understanding of what is coming in this section of text. So, for example, in this section, in my Bibles, and if you're using the Pew Bible, it's the English Standard Version of the Bible, and this section has the heading, Laws About Social Justice. Laws About Social Justice. And I think that that's a pretty good summary. Now, there's a problem with that, though. Um, These ESV chapter headings, they uh, date back all the way to 2001, when the ESV was first published. Uh, We're now 25 years later, almost. And the helpfulness of that 
is almost totally overshadowed by the strong reaction that you probably have to the term social justice. This term now provokes very strong reactions in people, whether positive or negative. Indeed, over the last decade, maybe more, but certainly over the last 10 years, Western culture has become obsessed with the idea of social justice. And there are now uh, self-styled social justice warriors who make it their ambition, their life purpose to stand up for those that they consider to be disenfranchised or marginalized or powerless. And uh, these people are, are the woke, as they're referred to um, by their critics and as they sometimes refer to themselves. Uh, these are folks that are apparently now wide awake. This is what the word means. They're, they're finally, their eyes are finally open. They're finally awake to the fact that all kinds of institutions and power structures that we have in our country are um, fundamentally oppressive to certain groups of people. And they're there for the purpose of, of keeping the ruling class in positions of power and of wealth. That's, that's the mindset. And on the other hand, you have the anti-woke. You have folks there that are able to discern that the social justice movement is really kind of a Trojan horse through which all kinds of destructive philosophies are smuggled in. Things like Marxism and feminism and gender ideology. And that's just to name a few. So you've got these two camps divided along what Pastor Vody Bauckham calls fault lines in a, in a recent book that he wrote on the topic. And Vody predicts that this kind of preoccupation with social justice is going to prove catastrophic, not just for Western culture, but for evangelicals and for the church. Many well-meaning Christians who have very godly desires to see things like race reconciliation and um, the uncovering of abuse. Um, many well-meaning Christians are often taken in by this movement and consequently they end up promoting all of its kind of ugly, ungodly assumptions and aims. Now as it happens, I share the concerns of Vody Bauckham and the many other conservative Christians that are kind of sounding the alarm on social justice. But I'm also concerned about their side of the fault line. I'll, I'll even say my side of the fault line. And what I mean by that is, if we're not careful, the anti-woke movement can also be catastrophic. Insofar as it cultivates suspicion and anger and denial that any kind of oppression exists, insofar as it kind of um, prompts us to very defensive and reactionary moves to, to preserve our own cultural identity or our, preserve our own power and position, that could be, that's a real danger. And those things could be very destructive. Now, obviously, I'm launching into a huge topic here. There's so much that could probably be said about the subject, but I want to try to confine my remarks to what the text teaches on the topic. And first of all, I want to try to salvage the ESV heading, even though we have strong reactions maybe against it. What we do have in this section are, in fact, laws about social justice. And I want to say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that term. It is simply biblical justice, justice by its true and right definition, applied in this particular sphere, this social sphere. It's, it's another way of saying this is the righteousness that's required of us, the people of God, according to the law of God, in dealing with our neighbors in a righteous and ungodly way in dealing with all of our neighbors. This is going to be a two-parter. I realized that it would probably be oppressive of me, even abusive, 
if I tried to tackle all of this in one sermon, and so I broke it up into two sections. And uh, in this first section, in this first sermon, we're going to just look at the section that is the second half of chapter 22. And in it, we'll uh, want to notice some social justice issues that the Lord God would have his people preoccupied with. We might, we might just discover that there are some things that the modern movement gets right. And next week, Lord willing, we'll move into the first part of chapter 23, where we're going to discover uh, a number of things that the modern social justice movement gets completely wrong. We'll see four sins that we would do very well to stay away from. And both of, those, both of these sermons are very important. If you um, just hear what I have to say today, if you miss next week, then you might, you might accuse me of being a bleeding heart liberal. And if a person only listens to part two, they might conclude that I am a hardcore conservative. But I, but I hope that you'll listen to both and then I hope that you'll conclude, not so much about me, but about us, that we are simply just trying to be biblical. We're simply just trying to be balanced. And we're trying to um, capture some of God's heart for these things. Okay, so that's where we're going. I give you a little bit of a roadmap here at the beginning um, so that you know what's coming, so that you'll be motivated to come back next week. But let's get into it, all right? Let's see, first of all, and if you're following along in an outline, you'll see um, some W's, some P's. First thing that we want to look at is weak people. Weak people. And this is what I see when I look at this passage, especially verses 21 to 27. I see weak people. I, the, the, the Lord God is bringing to the attention of his people certain demographics, certain categories of people who are at risk of being overlooked, if not actively oppressed and mistreated. By the way, the woke want us to think in terms of categories of people. Um, the different identities that people have, be it their race and ethnicity or their gender, their sexual preference, their socioeconomic status. Um, they, they want us to focus on those sorts of identity categories. And the non-woke really react against that and say, no, we want to deal with people as individuals, not according to their so-called group identity, and I just want to simply point out that Scripture seems fine with speaking about particular categories of people. There are four such demographics that are mentioned, and these cover, I, I think, three broad categories. And the first is the sojourner. The sojourner. This is the first as well as the last. If you take a peek at verse 21... And then just scan your eyes down to uh, verse 9 of chapter 23. You'll see that the same category and the same command is repeated. And so the sojourner is sort of forming a, a, a bracket, if you will, around this discussion of weak people and their proper treatment by the people of God. The sojourner. And the Lord, through Moses, is able to mention this demographic without any kind of definition or description. In fact, in all of these categories of weak people, it is assumed, I think, that they are easily identified. Unfortunately, it's not quite as clear to us. Uh, we're a little bit further removed in time and in culture. And so you're probably wondering, what is a sojourner? And quite simply, a sojourner in scripture is someone who is, is just passing through. 
we use that, that term, and I think it's, it's helpful. It's someone who is currently away from, displaced from, the place that they call home. Uh, the, the place that perhaps they'll eventually return to. It's, uh, they're away from the place that they are culturally and socially and maybe even linguistically comfortable. It, you know there's a place, there's a people that just feel, you know that you're at home with. Sojourners are away from that reality. They're in a different location. And if you've ever had a chance to travel internationally, you'll get a sense for what this is like. You know, you're in a foreign place with uh, customs and expectations that, that you're not really aware of. No one's really filled you in on. And you don't have really a strong enough command of the language to really be able to advocate for yourself. You're, you're left in a completely vulnerable position a lot of the times. Old Testament professor Cornelius Van Dam explains that in modern terminology, quote, most of the sojourners in Israel were like immigrants or refugees. They had left their original social setting and entered into a new dependent relationship in a new social setting. So when the, the Lord first spoke these words, it was just after the exodus. And we think of that event as, as the time in which the, the Israelites left uh, Egypt in the most astounding way. But Exodus 12, verse 38, told us that a mixed multitude also went up with them. And that means that with them, with the people of Israel, Israel folks from various ethnicities and backgrounds escaped Egypt in this throng that was uh, being released by God. So Israel's being emancipated and a bunch of other types of people get on board with this and they attach themselves to Israel and their good God. And so it's not just a monolithic people of Israel that are traveling now through the wilderness and who will take residence in the promised land. It's a mixed multitude there's going to be lots of sojourners among them. And furthermore, from the very beginning, from the time of Abraham, uh, this has been the Lord's intention for his people. Right? You remember that the Lord, when he spoke to Abraham, says, I'm going to bless you, and it's for the purpose of you being a blessing to the nations. The Lord God intended to bless his people so much that the nations would be drawn to to his people and ultimately to him, and that his people then would be a blessing to all that came into contact with them. And so what I'm saying is that throughout their history, many people would come to Israel and be among Israel and be sojourning with them. Now, I think it's an important exercise for for us to kind of just evaluate ourselves along these lines. I want you to think about how you feel when you encounter people that look different from you, both in terms of their skin color and their clothing. What, ha what happens inside of you when you hear people speaking in their mother tongue? In, in the aisle of your grocery store, when they're speaking some strange language, in America, what, what is provoked in you? And the, the exercise I think will be most worthwhile if you kind of just set aside for the time being discussions about immigration policy, as important as those discussions are. The, the point is not how they've got here. The point is how do you honestly feel about such people in your heart. And I'm, I'm asking you to try to put your finger on that because that actually is an accurate predictor of how you are inclined to treat them. Now a second category of weak people are widows and orphans. Those are technically two 
different demographics, but we can kind of take them together since the cause for their weakness, their vulnerability, is the same. They're, they're without a man, be it a husband or a father. And I know that the, I'm very well aware of the fact that in our feminist culture, um, men are deemed as unnecessary and, and problematic. And, you know, modern chicks are, are boss babes and they, they seem to prefer to take care of themselves. I, I hope that it goes without saying that for all of human history, except, you know, for the last five minutes, that was certainly not the case. The, the man of the house was the main source of income. He was both the provider and the protector. He was, he was the leader. He set the direction of the family. He, he, was, he set the discipline for the family. And so it was completely devastating if, for whatever reason, a wife was deprived of her husband or a child, his father. They're left without resources. They're left without advocacy, without a defender. They, they were rendered by that weak people. And I want to ask you what your heart's attitude towards widows and orphans are. I don't just suspect this. I know for a fact that you actually are very tender towards this demographic. You, I know that you regularly give and generously to meet the needs of people in these categories. So let me just, let me just press on one potential sore spot, if you don't mind. It's no secret that the, the current conversations about social justice often revolve around race. In fact, social justice has become a movement over the last decade, pr predominantly and primarily because of a number of very tragic encounters between African Americans and the police. And uh, with each of these cases, you have a ton of media attention, and all of these media have their own narratives to promote. You have, in the aftermath, protests and, and riots and looting that takes place. And it, it becomes almost impossible to know exactly what, what has happened. It becomes almost impossible to have an objective conversation about race in America. And uh, instead, we kind of just assemble in our camps uh, on either side of a fault line. And on the one side, you have people saying that the cops are racist and that they're out here killing black people for sport. And, and they cry out, you know, black lives matter. And they, they say that we need to defund the police. But then on the other hand, you have people that back the blue. And they insist that all of these high-profile shootings, though unfortunate, were necessary because the victims had, had reached for a gun, or they'd been high on drugs, or in the process of robbing a store. They point out that African Americans have a high proportion of fatal encounters with the police because they commit a disproportionate amount of crime in America. It's often violent crime. And if I had to guess, I would guess that most of you are on that side, even if just privately. You know, the, these are very unpopular things to say out loud. And so, um, but that's, that's probably what you think. To, to say, for example, it's very unpopular to say this, but I bet you think this, that far and away, the biggest problem facing African Americans today is of their own making. Namely, that a vast majority of them are raised by single mothers in fatherless homes. Thus, there's, there's uh, generational poverty. There's, there's no discipline. There's no example for young men to, you know, to, to follow, 
to, to know how to kind of control their aggression or to, to channel their strength to constructive ends. You, you, you know, you're on the side, I'm sure, that, that says that fatherlessness is the problem. That's the real problem here. Not that America is racist. The real problem is fatherlessness. That's, that's the conclusion that you come to, right? Well, if so, then I want to ask you, why, why isn't your compassion for fatherlessness kicking in? Why do you come to that conclusion as if to just do this? Now, the third category of folks that are at risk are the poor. And they're the focus of verses uh, 25 to 27. And this is not a, necessarily a separate category of people. It's quite conceivable that many, or even most, of the people in the previous categories are also belonging to this one. Okay, That they're destitute. They, there's no regular source of income. Perhaps they're injured. Maybe they're chronically sick. Maybe they're handicapped. They're not able to provide for themselves, and they're not able to advocate for themselves. Or maybe they can work, but they are landless. They, they don't have, they don't own anything that, that can grow or produce. And so they're just kind of locked into low-paying, dead-end jobs where they just merely subsist. And, and maybe they can't even do that. That's who the Lord is drawing our attention to. And I think it's also important that we would examine our heart attitudes towards those people. What do, you, what do you honestly think about people who are on SNAP? When, it, when ahead of you at the grocery checkout, you see them swipe their EBT card. Are you scrutinizing what's in their bags? How do, you, how do you honestly think? And I think, again, I think the heart check is important because we act out of the overflow of our hearts. And if we inwardly despise weak people, then that is going to manifest itself in our next point, which is wrongs perpetrated. Wrongs perpetrated. The Lord commands in verse 21 and in verse 9 that his people must not wrong a sojourner. Now, all of the ways that you could potentially wrong a foreigner is, is not spelled out for us in the text, but it doesn't really take much of an imagination to start a list. Okay, I've, I've had the privilege of doing some international travel um, in places where I'm very weak and vulnerable because I don't know the language and I'm not comfortable and quick with the currency and I'm unaware of the customs. And so I know that I've been shortchanged. I know that I've been overcharged. I've, I've, I've paid more than my fair share of gringo prices. I've been in some very long, very circuitous cab rides in my life. Trust me, I've got stories. <laughs> and to wrong a sojourner involves anything that kind of proceeds on the fact that they are strange or other. And anything that capitalizes on their weakness and on their vulnerabilities. These wrongs, that can, it can go from simple mistreatment which would include just basic suspicion about them, you know, defaulting to just thinking that they're, they're shady or criminals. Um, it could be unfriendliness towards them, but it could range to just full-out oppression, which might even include enslavement and violence. The Lord God is very clear why perpetrating such wrongs would be particularly perverse in the case of the Israelites. 
Again, this is in verse, both in verse 21 and 9. You can take a look at either one of those or both of those and see that the reason is it's because it wasn't very long ago that Israel was in that very position. They were sojourn. They themselves were sojourners in the land of Egypt. They came to that land 400-some years prior as refugees. You remember that they were fleeing famine, and the original Pharaoh had dealt very kindly with them uh, for the sake of Joseph, who uh, the Lord used to save and prosper their country. But when that Pharaoh died, there arose a new king, and uh, the sentiments towards these sojourners now shifted, and they were enslaved and oppressed. The, oppressed, that was, that was the word that the Lord used over and over again to describe the cruelty, the mistreatment that the Israelites themselves endured under the heavy hands of their taskmasters. They themselves were sojourners, and they themselves were awfully mistreated. How perverse would it be for the Israelites recently released, about to come into a position of power, to kind of turn around and treat those who sojourned among them the same way. The, the Israelites ought to rather have the, the opposite inclination. They ought to deal lovingly and graciously and patiently and generously with the weak among them. Since they know exactly what it was like to be in that position. It wasn't that long ago. And I've referred to this uh, in the past as a sort of ethic of empathy. So how can widows and orphans be mistreated? Widows and orphans, how about them? How do you mistreat uh, people in this demographic? And again, it's not spelled out here. And I think that's because there's a million different ways. For example... Uh, a single lady brings her car into an auto shop and all that she's able to say is that it's just making some sort of clinking noise. And so after a bit, the mechanic comes back in to the waiting room and uh, tells her that she's going to need a new flux capacitor and uh, probably have the headlight fluid topped up it's, got to, it's probably going to run her about 1100 bucks. I, I don't mean that to be funny. It's sad. And it happens all the time. What about the poor? Well, we do have some examples here given in verse 25. And then... You see that there? Just some, some of the kinds of wrongs that are... Um, perpetuated against the, the poor. The first is what we might call predatory lending practices. So someone finds themselves in dire straits for whatever reason, and they need a loan. The Lord forbids his people from acting like loan sharks, you know, who take advantage of that, of that weak person in that vulnerable, desperate sort of situation and, and use that to their own advantage to make all kinds of money. The Lord God says, you shall not exact interest from your brother in that way. This need, loan him money, but that, this needs to be an interest-free loan. Have some mercy, have some pity. Furthermore, if you need to take some sort of collateral, some, some sort of um, take something so that you can um, incentivize him paying back that loan. For example, he doesn't have much, so, so you take his coat as collateral. Well, the Lord God commands that you don't keep that coat overnight because he needs it to keep himself warm. That's all he's got. And I think the principle here would apply to all sorts of terrible practices like uh, payday loans and 
pawn shops who give pennies on the dollar for very valuable and personal and necessary items. And I don't know how it makes you feel to, to know that all of those credit card points that you get, rewards and cash back, all of that's paid, of course, by people who are in credit card debt up to their nose, and they're, they're paying astronomical interest rates. I don't know how it makes you feel to know that credit cards are heavily marketed to college kids who are essentially fatherless for the first time. And it's, it's all very predatory beha behavior that's seen as totally acceptable. And by the way, there, there's an awful lot of talk within the social justice movement about how oppression of certain groups is systemic. Have you heard that word before? What they mean by it is that it's built right into the, the fabric of our institutions. Now, I understand that, that people need to be much more specific about which systems and institutions. And they need to be able to detail the particular ways that, that, they, that this institution or system is racist or sexist, for example. But it seems to me that we Christians who understand something of the reality of sin and its spread and its poison, it seems to me that we shouldn't have any trouble believing that mistreatment and oppression of certain classes of people can be baked into the very fabric of our society. It, it seems to be a very strange and disingenuous defense for us non-woke to suggest that America is the paragon of virtue. And it would be very dishonest for Christians to conclude that we're innocent when it comes to wrongs per perpetrated against weak people. Because it was to people just like us, it is to people just like us, that the Apostle James had to write, quote, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, I guess that would probably be at the back, you know, the, the real priority, priority seating in a Baptist church. You come sit at, the, sit at the best place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James, James is writing to us. And he's writing to remind us, prone as we are to, you know, being partial to the powerful, he has to remind us that pure and undefiled religion is, is this. It's visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Brothers and sisters, we as the redeemed people of God must not mistreat people. We must not perpetrate wrong against people who are weak. Let's see a, a third thing. And that is whimpering, whimpering, perceived. One thing that sojourners and widows and orphans and the poor have in common is the amount of tears that they spill the number of sleepless nights that they endure, the groans and the whimpers that are exhaled. And we discover right here in, in the details of this dense case law, which we may have been tempted to skip over in our daily reading, we, we discover something very special and very comforting about the character of our great God. One of those things that we discover is that he is a God who hears. He's a God who hears. Do you know that there has never been a tear or a sigh that has gone unnoticed by our Heavenly Father? 
He, he precedes all of our whimpers. I love Psalm 56, verse 8, in which David says, You've kept count of my tossings. Every time I flipped over because I couldn't sleep, you've, you, you've kept count of that. You've put my tears in, in a bottle. Are they not in your book? The Lord God assures the poor and us, who might be attempted to, tempted to oppress the poor, he reminds us that the cries of the poor are not in vain. And scripture, I think, often wants us to, to visualize this, like to picture it in our mind's eye. In the same way that we're, we're meant to picture the idea of blood guilt. That's also something that's spoken quite a bit in these pages. The idea of blood that is spilled from an innocent person. For example, the blood of righteous Abel. The Bible says it, it cries out. It was spilled, of course, by his brother Cain in murder. But that blood cries out, and that cry reaches all the way up into the heavens, and it touches, touches the throne, as it were, and captures God's attention. Again, so to speak. This is for the purpose of the image and so, so it is with the tears of the poor and the oppressed. It says their cries reach the very throne room of God, and God hears them. Look at the end of verse 23. This is God himself speaking. He says, I will surely hear their cry. Listen to that emphasis. Surely. There's not a chance that he's going to miss this. This is something that the poor can take to the bank. God will surely hear their cry. And look at the end of verse 27. If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And I want you, friends, just let that land on you. I'm, I, I'm zealous that that would land on you this morning. We've been crying out for a year and a half now, groaning because of the oppression that our loved one who is sojourning in another land is experiencing. I want you to be encouraged today to know that the Lord God surely hears our brother's cries and that the Lord God surely hears our cries. We're, we're, not, we're not just crying out in vain. We have a compassionate God our tears are not lost and forgotten. Our prayers are not ineffectual. The fact that God surely hears is, at the same time, encouragement for, for the marginalized, and it's a warning for those who might be tempted to mistreat them. And Israel kind of gets double impact because, again, they're on both sides of this. Ladies, especially. I want you to think about the literary context. Okay? Think about the literary context here. Do you remember anywhere else in Exodus that you might have heard about the Lord hearing the cries of the oppressed? Yeah, lots of times. But maybe most notably in, at the beginning of chapter 2. Well, the, sorry, at the end of chapter 2 where we read, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So yes, the Israelites know that God is a God who hears groanings. And not only hears, but who actually rises and acts for the deliverance of the weak and the oppressed. And that leads us to our final point, where we see, very quickly, wrath poured out. Wrath poured out. Now, in, in theology, it's very, it's, it's often necessary 
to walk very fine lines. So, for example, it, it's, it's very important that we confess that God is immutable, that he is unchangeable, that here is, he is, here's a fancy word, impassable, which means that God is not subject to passions like we are. He doesn't have emotions that kind of just sneak up on him and overcome him such that he reacts. So we, we need to affirm all of that without sacrificing the truth that God is, shall we say, impassioned. That out of compassion, God is moved to act in, in righteousness. Our Heavenly Father is certainly not passive, okay? He, he's not merely seated in heaven, who's just kind of hearing all of these cries and unable and unwilling to, to do something about it. No, the picture that we get is actually of him rising and acting on behalf of the oppressed. And so we continue in verse 24. I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. This is a, a picture of the Lord that comes with a warning, comes as a, a strong deterrent against any any person, any of his people, that's who he's addressing primarily, any of his people that might be tempted to mistreat and oppress weak people. It's a, this is a picture of the Lord rising with his wrath justly ignited, burning against such unrighteousness, and, and don't get the wrong impression, it's not just a picture of God, you know, like smoldering and, and stewing, kind of keeping all of his righteous rage bottled up. Rather, this is a picture of his wrath poured out, and poured out in the most appropriate way possible. We've been studying these, these case laws long enough. We've been understanding something, I hope, of the law of retaliation. It's referred to sometimes as lex talionis. It's the whole idea of the punishment fitting the crime. You know, it's the whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing. Well, in keeping with that, the, the Lord is promising that he's going to pour out his wrath upon those who would oppress widows and, and orphans and deal with them in a very cruel way. He, he's telling us, that the Lord God is going to deal with such oppressors in a very fair, just way. He, he's going to de destroy that guy and turn his wife into a widow and his children into orphans. That's what you get for oppressing widows and orphans. It's tooth for tooth, it's eye for eye, it's life for life. Now, it's a, it's a huge mistake to do what many people do and say, oh, that's just, that's just the God of the Old Testament, you know, who's kind of harsh and vindictive. He's nothing like the God of the New Testament who's loving and kind and forgiving. That's a, that is a huge mistake to make. It's the same God. But God is definitely showing us here in the law that he is righteous and that he is just and that he has wrath against sin and that that wrath must be poured out. And we see in these, these terrifying statements just how seriously the Lord takes our sin and just how severely it needs to be punished. The Israelites needed to know and we need to know and understand that if we set ourselves against the poor and the oppressed and the weak, then we're setting ourselves against the Lord. Because the Lord God is compassionate towards them. 
We're setting against ourselves against the one who's going to rise and act and pour out his wrath against their enemies who happens to be us. I, th- I think it's fair to say that the Lord God is the ultimate social justice warrior. That he is full of compassion. That he is full of vengeance. That he's full of truth, even as he's full of grace. He's full of... ...in that we're both victims and perpetrators of wrongs against the weak. We're victims, to use that term. We, We were weak... We, we ourselves were oppressed by the sin and by, by sin and by Satan. We, we groaned under the weight of it. We were totally helpless. We were lost. We were undone. We didn't even know enough to cry. But the Lord God, in his compassion and his kindness, he arose and he rescued us. He delivered us. The Bible says, this is, this is our testimony, that while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's the other reality, isn't it? Not just that we're weak and oppressed, but that we actually are ungodly, that we were the perpetrators. We were racist and sexist and xenophobic. We, we gave preference and privilege to to the powerful and we turned our back on all who were poor and insignificant we we stepped on anyone and everyone that we could if it meant gaining our own advantage and so we were by nature objects of wrath wrath was coming upon us we we were about to get exactly what we deserved which is death God's wrath was about to be poured out on us, but then we, then we caught a, a glimpse of Calvary. And then we saw the cross. And we saw the, the sky go dark. We heard Christ groaning upon the tree. And we saw the wrath of God poured out on his own son instead of on me. And so we sing amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. What what compassion, what mercy we have been shown in the gospel. And and friends, those of us who have been rescued at so great a cost, We ought, therefore, to have compassion and mercy upon the sojourner. We ought to meet the needs of the poor. We ought to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Amen? Amen.